Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the wonderful Sabbath you gave us. Lord, it was, it was cherished. We loved it. We enjoyed the time together, the fellowship, the rest that we found in Jesus, the study we had this morning. So now, Lord, as we come together again with a very important topic, um, but also a very passionate one. And so, Lord, we ask that it would be your Holy Spirit who leads us and to convict us this evening. We do humbly submit ourselves as the clay, and we ask that because you're the potter, that you will mold us and shape us. You will work with us and turn us towards your face, that we might keep our eyes on heavenly things, even in the midst of the darkness and the stress of this world, that we will look above and look to our Redeemer. Help us do that this evening, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to pick up with this lesson uh, assuming that everyone has studied with us our National Treasure series on, uh, on America and prophecy. Uh, so I won't go into a whole lot of why we believe that the United States of America is the second beast of Revelation 13. We're going to kind of pick up with that knowledge that, that we believe that it is the second beast which works with the first beast in passing the mark of the beast. And so our nation is described there. I want you to notice that the character of our nation is described as in, in the description of that second beast. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, and notice the character that our nation struggles with. It says here, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. And so I know I've said this before, and I'll, I'll give you one last reminder. Too often we're hearing our own, even, even our own evangelists say that America is beginning to speak like a dragon, but that's not what it says here. It says that as our existence came about, we were this character from the beginning. We present a Christian nation. We have two horns like a lamb. We aren't just fake. I mean, we have pure Christian values built into our nation. Amen? But at the same time, as that's happening, we have this other side that there is a beast power, a dragon power in us inspiring some of the things that we have done in our history. And it really helps us understand American history. Why we could be a Christian nation and have done the things that we've done, both good and bad. Our nation has been, let me be clear, our nation has been very good to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I believe the Seventh-day Adventist Church has been very good to our nation. These are very clear in history. We have been very good for one another. And yet, some of the things that our nation has done, some of our policies, some of the culture has been bad for Christianity. It's been difficult for Christianity to work because of some of the things that we've done. Our culture is two-faced. We have a Christian outward appearance, but we speak like a dragon. There is, though, something that changes. So this character begins at the beginning of our nation. But there is something that changes in prophecy concerning our nation. Here in Revelation 13, we are called a beast. A beast is a political power. A beast is a nation. And so we are a nation as we begin. But it is not where we end. There is a change in our nation according to Scripture. Let's look what we're called in Revelation 16 and verse 13. 
Revelation 16, verse 13 says this, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Who's the dragon? Satan. The dragon is Satan. The beast is the first beast of Revelation 13. We've studied that in our evangelism. We know that to be the papacy. But then the second beast, the beast that rose out of the land, isn't called a beast here. It is called what? A false prophet. So there is a change that is taking place in our country, and there's a change taking place in Scripture. We go from being a beast out of the land to a false prophet. Here's what this means. Our nation began, of course, as a nation. The United States of America begins as a nation, but then it transfers in the last days after the Sunday law into a religious power. Our nation will take steps in which it, ta- it goes from being a civil authority to a religious authority. It starts as a nation of laws and a president and a congress, and it becomes a nation led by the daughters of the harlot. It becomes a religious power, a false prophet, according to Revelation chapter 16. Now, I want you to notice, though, that when we study what a false prophet is, a false prophet has the exact same characteristics as the beast from the land. What was the characteristics of the beast of the land? It presents itself as one thing, but inwardly it's something else. So let's notice what Jesus defines as a false prophet. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. I mean, it's almost the same language of Revelation 13. Revelation 13, we have a beast out of the land who presents itself. It has two horns like a lamb, and it speaks like a dragon. Here, in describing a false prophet, we have the same type of description. Outwardly, it is wearing sheep's clothing, but inwardly, it is a ravenous wolf. And so our nation, though the role of our nation changes, though our nation changes its job description from a civil authority to a religious authority, do we see in Scripture a change of character? No. Same character. Outward, it's this. Inward, it's this, right? Outward, it is two horns like a lamb, or it has sheep's clothing. And inward, it speaks like a dragon, or here it is as if it is a ravenous wolf. The character remains the same, though the job description changes. And that's what we're seeing slowly happen. It's speeding up, but we're seeing it slowly happen in our nation. The character's not changing. We are still that two-faced power, but our job description is what's changing. In fact, notice what Paul warns us about in the last days. We're going to see the same formula. But know this, Paul writes to his young disciple Timothy, but know this, that in the last days, perilous or dangerous times will come. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. 
and from such people turn away. Do you catch that? You see the same formula? A form of godliness in the last days. What's the danger? He says, be careful. Dangerous times are coming. And what's the danger? There is a deception in that things are being presented as godly. Things are being presented as the lamb, as the sheep, right? But inwardly, if we are in tune with Scripture, we know that the intent is different. You catch the difference there? There's the spoken lie. We are doing God's work. We are godly. We are righteous. But inwardly, there's a different intent. This then brings us as proud Adventist Christians, as proud, passionate Americans, a very tight rope to walk, doesn't it? Because we love our nation. We really, I love our nation. I am so blessed to have been raised in the United States of America. It has been good for my life to have the freedoms that this nation offers. And I have been blessed by men and women who have served to defend that freedom. We, have been, we are so blessed in this nation, but we still know what our nation is. Is this consistent with, uh, with Scripture? How about Joseph? How about Daniel, his three friends? How about Esther? People in, uh, in, in dangerous situations, in nations that were not godly, but did they act and work appropriately to bless the nation? Yeah, so we are not new to this formula. People have walked this road before in front of us. Amen? We can turn to Scripture and we can see the road laid before us in these great champions of faith. People who want dearly to be a good citizen, to be good people, but to still put God before country to still know what their country is, what their empire is, what it represents, the evils it is doing, but to still be good, kind people. It's a balancing act. It's a tightrope. It's a fine, thin line, which just means what for the Christian? It's even more important to study and study and study. It's even more, probably there's a greater responsibility on us to follow the Word of God in times like this, right? In times like these. So we're going to talk about politics tonight, and I'm going to tell you from now, I don't want you to, if you hear anything else, either you're misunderstanding or I'm not being clear enough. I want us to be active Americans. I believe as we get ready for the 2022 midterms, we should vote. We should be involved in our nation. We should uh, go out and vote, but I want us to better understand what is the guiding principle of our political voice. What needs to be what we cherish in our political world? Uh, I'll have the reference at the third slide at the end, but I want to notice a very important paragraph here from the writings of Ellen White. I believe, well, don't quote me yet, it's on the third slide. I think this is the first volume of the Testimonies to the Church, page 533 and 534. She says this, Many professed Sabbath keepers will be no special benefit to the cause of God or the church without a thorough reformation on their part. 
many Sabbath keepers are not right before God in their political views. Their views do not accord with the principles of our faith. Stepping on my toes already, maybe your toes as well. You know, I really want myself and us to be a special benefit to the cause of God. I really adamantly want us to be a special benefit to the cause of God and the proclamation of the gospel. Does she say here, then to do that, ignore politics? No, but she does tell us to have the right focus in politics, doesn't she? She admits that many of us, many Sabbath keepers, are not right before God in their political views. In other words, many Christians today try to separate the two. And I understand there is a separation of church and state, but that's politically, not necessarily in my heart or in my views. We try to separate it. I have my Christian values and my political values over here. But she's saying, no, our political values need to be in line with our principles of our faith. Amen? Got it? They've got to be in line with our faith. Okay, let's keep reading. Warning, she's going to step on her toes some more. Their principles and positions in political matters are a great hindrance to their spiritual advancement. Sometimes we forget our politics can get in the way of our spiritual life. These are a constant snare to them, to the person, individual, and a reproach to our faith. And those who retain these principles will eventually be brought just where the enemy would be glad to have them, where they will be finally separated from Sabbath-keeping Christians. So no, she doesn't say don't have a political voice. She doesn't say don't have a political opinion. But our political thoughts, our vote, needs to be in line with the work of God. In line with our faith-based values, our, our real values, our Christian values as Adventists. And notice that behind the scenes, behind it all, Satan is trying to use our politics to separate us from the work of God. Do you see that there? He's trying, in effect, his end goal is to use the political world, our political opinions, our vote to distance us from the work, from the church itself, to separate us from Sabbath-keeping Christians. So let me ask you, make sure we're all on the same page, is discussing the Seventh-day Adventist work and politics an important topic? It is. Because if we don't have them in accord with one another, if, we're not, if we don't have them in line, these principles, Satan can separate us from the work of God. And you notice, it's not just that we're not going to be good to the church, but it's not good for our own walk. Did you catch that? A constant snare to them and a reproach to our church, to our faith. So here she is in 1867 talking about politics and our work within the political world, our views, our ways, our beliefs. What exactly is she talking about? What, in what way were we failing in 1867? She'll, let's finish her thought here. These brethren cannot receive the approval of God while they lack sympathy for the oppressed colored race. 
and are at variance with the pure Republican principles of our government. Let me first define Republican. She's not talking about the party. She's talking about the type of government. We are a democratic republic. So in our government, are there pure principles? Yes. Did we read that already in Scripture? Absolutely. Two horns of a lamb. Outwardly, we are dressed like sheep, right? Our nation is dressed like a sheep. But inwardly, we're ravenous wolves. We speak like a dragon. Our nation has both. Both are there. But notice here, and we can sum this up to 2022. What is the principle of our faith that we should be guided by? Would it be fair to sum that up, the sympathy for the oppressed colored race, as love? The work of God is, a, is the work of love, is it not? What is God? God is love. And so the church is the repository of his grace, of his love, to what? To share his love with others. So what then is the ultimate guiding fact? What is the ultimate guiding decision in our political views if we stand in line with our faith? The things that we decide politically, individually, should be founded in love. In love. It's important for us to be founded in love. Is there then a political party of love? I think that, I think as I read this, we are called to be an issue-based people and not a party-driven people. An issue-driven people and not a party-driven people. Issues, look at the issues, look at the laws, look at the candidates, and our guiding uh, foundation, our guiding part of the recipe in this is love. So let's take a look at this for a moment with probably the greatest, the biggest debate we have in the United States uh, over the last several years. And this is where we're going to get really, 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 uh, really dangerous here in our topic. Let's look a little bit at capitalism and Marxism, okay? What I'm going to do is, now listen, I could, we could probably need several lessons, weeks to really understand what capitalism is, and several weeks and lessons to really understand what Marxism is. But I'm gonna, I did my best to try to find a succinct sentence to describe the values of both, the wishes, the goals of both. Uh, capitalism is defined as an economic ideology of private ownership for personal profit. Agree? It's pretty succinct. Is capitalism a type of government? No. We have to, we have to watch what we say sometimes. I hear people say, we, we're a capitalist government. We are, it is an economic ideology of private ownership. I can own a business, you can own a business, and you can run it for personal profit. Okay? Marxism is uh, maybe best defined as this, an economic ideology of rebellion against capitalism with a system of community ownership with one class of people. Again, I know there are many more avenues, many more things to discuss in each, but in trying to nail it down to a succinct sentence of each, a definition, this best describes Marxism. You have to include that it's a rebellion against capitalism. That's literally what it is. Karl Marx literally hated capitalism. By the way, in a few minutes, we're going to find out why he hated capitalism. He really hated capitalism. And so it is a rebellion against capitalism. 
And it is a system of community ownership with one class of people. By the way, Karl Marx is actually the one who uh, uh, coined the term capitalist because he viewed people of that persuasion as people who capitalized on others. That the rich get richer, that they get wealthier when they capitalize on the, the poor or the oppressed of their, of their area or their nation. That's his words. Don't stone me. That's how he saw capitalism. Now, it's interesting to note that Marxism, we have zero, zero, not one. We don't have a single example in our world where Marxism has actually done that sentence. It has never, well, it rebels against capitalism, but it has never brought about a system of community ownership with one class of people. In every Marxist country, you know, Marxist being any country that practices socialism or communism, think of North Korea, think of China, think of Cuba, think of the Soviet Union. Did we ever see them uh, come to that sentence, to agree and, and accomplish that sentence? No. What happened? The rich got richer, the poor got more oppressed, the people get more oppressed. So as we talk over the next few minutes, please know now, I'm telling you now, Marxism is bad. It doesn't work. We're going to talk more about capitalism tonight because we know, as most of us know as Americans, Marxism is bad. It's not good. It doesn't work. Now, why doesn't it work? It doesn't work because we live in a world of sin and pride. And sinners and sinful philosophies cannot ever live in harmony. Because the, what is the foundation of harmony? It's love. And without love, without the presence of God's love, we will not live as one community ownership with one class of people. You know, what really happens is that in Marxist nations, in, in the history of Marxist nations, someone always, forgive the term, someone always capitalizes on someone else. That's really, if we're really honest, that the problem is that someone always starts to practice capitalism in Marxism. Someone always, you know, the leaders of the Soviet Union, the leaders of North Korea, they always end up starting to capitalize on the oppressed and oppress people even more and more and more. Why? Because we live in a sinful world. Let me ask you, just those sentences alone, could either one of those work in a godly, righteous nation? Absolutely, right? In fact, think about eternity. Think about eternity. Think about the new earth. Are we going to have private ownership over our homes and vineyards? Isaiah 65 says they will build houses and vineyards. They will grow and they will eat. And what? No one else will take from them. We will have our own private ownership for personal profit. Will it be a sinful personal profit? No, I'm sorry. This is my garlic field. You can't have any. No, we're still going to share and love each other because it's going to be a godly loving place. But in eternity, are we going to have a, uh, a one class of people? All equal. Are there going to be rich and poor? Are there going to be people capitalizing on other people? No. And so we will have a perfect government in heaven, and it will have pieces of both of those. We'll have private ownership of the land, the house that we build. We're going to plant things for ourselves, and we're going to, have, we're going to be one class of people equal as children of God. So in heaven and in eternity and in righteousness, either of those sentences can work. But we don't live in heaven yet, unfortunately. 
We live in a sinful world. And so then let's look at the other side. Can either one of those in a sinful environment, can either one of those be bad? Either one of those are, can be bad. Private ownership of personal profit, absolutely. People can be selfish and oppress people. And Marxism, we see clearly in history, it does do that. It oppresses people. In fact, as nice as Marxism, that sentence is at least, I should say, that sentence is nice, we actually know based on the words of Jesus that we will never on this earth, in this sinful world, never have just one class of people. Jesus himself tells us this in John chapter 12, verse 8. For the poor you have with you always. Now, does that mean for eternity? No, it means until it's done. Until the second coming, you'll have the poor with you always. But me, you do not always have. I actually sadly heard a Christian a couple months ago, read a Christian on Facebook, uh, telling us that we didn't need to care for the poor because Jesus says the poor are going to be here and we're not going to solve the problem. Is Jesus cherishing that there's poor with us? Is he saying, make sure there's poor with you always? No, he's just stating a fact that because we live in a sinful world, someone will always be in the oppressed class, the poor class. There's always going to be in this world the poor. Doesn't Jesus then also tell us to feed the hungry and to give water to the thirsty and to help and to be a blessing to people? Absolutely. So in a perfect society, we will have those two sentences. But we live in a sinful society. We live in a sinful world. And both of those can also be plagues to the nations. We know what that means when we look at these sentences and they can both be good and bad. Isn't that already describing two horns like a lamb but speaks like a dragon? It's good and bad. It's good and bad. In fact, I want you to think about Satan now for a moment. Lucifer's rebellion. Wasn't Lucifer's rebellion for private ownership? What did he want? I will ascend into the heavens. I will ascend. I will be like God. Whose profit was his rebellion for? Himself. He was trying, and did he capitalize on a third? He tried to take all of the angels, but he got a third of the angels who he oppressed and he had follow him. It was for personal profit, his own profit. And so we could also use that sentence to define satanic intent. His intent in his rebellion was private ownership. I want to be in charge. I can do this better, and it's for my profit. However, as he spoke to the angels in heaven, as he spoke to Eve in the garden, did he say those words to them? Did he, say, did he say to Eve, hey, eat this, assuming it's an apple. Eat this apple because it will help me have a kingdom. Isn't that what he was looking for on earth? He wanted private ownership of the earth, right? Did he say, I want to be the owner of this world, and it's going to be good for me if you eat this. Is that what he said? No. What did he say? He said, you won't surely die. You will be like God. What's he saying? We're going to be one class of people. We're all going to be God. Follow me and it's good for you. We could define then Marxism as a satanic lie. His intent, 
His purpose in his rebellion is personal profit and private ownership. But what he says to people, what he entices us in with, is a satanic lie of this is good for you. Join me and this is good for you and we will do this together. You will be like God. I'm like God. Look at me. I ate, right? I'm fine. Look at me. I'm a speaking serpent. He was all, you can, we have a community ownership. God can't take this tree away from you. This is owned by all of us. Did we buy into his lie? We bought into his lie. Did it work? No. So even we go back to the garden, Marxism doesn't work. It doesn't work. But it is, his, it is what he says out loud. It is what he is projecting. But his intent of his heart is the evils of capitalism. Did you hear me correctly? I didn't say capitalism is, e- is evil. I said it has evil tendencies. And he profits off of the evil tendencies of capitalism. By the way, even in our own nation, we have oppressed people that we oppress worse and worse and worse. And it is because of our strategies of capitalism. You know this man? Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson had what Congress called, now you know me better, this isn't my theology, my belief, but he had what he called the Indian problem. See, the the United States wanted to expand west. Well, who lived out west? All the Native Americans. So they had to take the land. So there were two options. We We can get the land by some other, by some means, or we can take it by force. Well, eventually, of course, we know our history, we take it by force, right? But he had an idea, and he sent a secret letter to Congress that is now open to the public. And it was, hey, let's not take it by force. I've got another plan. Notice this language. It's almost like how drug dealers work. He said, let's give them some goods for free, some products for free. Once they get used to using these things... Then we're not going to give it to them for free anymore. We're going to start charging them. We're going to now put a cost. We'll sell it to them once they need it. Once their culture gets used to these goods, we will sell it to them. And we're not going to just sell it to them. We're going to sell it to them at really high prices. And we're going to sell it to them at such high prices that they cannot afford it, but they need it. So what will they do? They'll take it on credit. Now, Native Americans have no idea of credit. They don't understand credit, especially at this time. They have no idea what that means. All they know is that, okay, you want to give me guns or figs or wheat or whatever, and all I have to do is X? Okay, fine, I'm in. But when the Native Americans get so overwhelmed with debt, when they owe more than they could ever pay back, then we'll tell them, okay, we'll take your land as as payment for for your debt. So there was that way, or there was by force. Which one sounds better to us as Christians? Neither. They're both evil. They're both terrible. But isn't that banking one, the credit one, isn't that capitalism? It's capitalism. Let's let's charge them and charge them and charge them, and we will uh, take it. We will capitalize on their debt, and we will take their land. Either way, it was going to end the way it does uh, with Native Americans on reservations. And under the poverty line, far below the poverty line. Either way was going to end up bad. And yet, this is what we chose. We decided not to do that way. We decided to take it 
by force. Listen, my only point isn't that capitalism is evil, but that it also has evil tendencies. That in a sinful world, people can also use it for their own good and not for the good of mankind, right? Should we then as Christians be so focused on that style, that ideology? When Galatians warns us this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So something that is sinful, something that is wicked, something that even just a little bit, it grows. Listen, if I had baked a cake today and taken it to potluck, and I was open and honest with you, there's rat poison in the cake. But it's just a little bit of rat poison, but I also put a lot of sugar in it. So don't worry, you won't taste it. Anyone going to take the cake? I hope not. Because a little poison poisons the cake. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little sin turns a thing sinful. And what do we know about our nation? It is both good and bad. But where is it going in the end? It will unite itself with Rome. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. But what about the government of God? How can we define the government of God? Desire of Ages 759. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are to be the prevailing power. Amen? This is our focus in our government. This is what we want in our government. As Christians, our goal should be to have something moral and truthful and loving, to be as God's government. So we know that our nation is declared in Revelation 13 as a lamb-like beast who speaks like a dragon. 246 years now since the moment that this prophecy was fulfilled in 1798, 246 years now. 246 years. And our nation has lived up to the prophecy of Scripture. But let me ask you. Again, I'm not saying Marxism is the right way. You've heard me say that. But in those years of our nation, has our nation been Marxist or capitalist? It's been capitalist. And what our, what, our, what our scriptures warn us about is this nation. Now, you may not understand yet why I'm saying this, but you will, I hope, soon. So bear with me. But even according to the book of Revelation, after the Sunday law is passed, after this plagues have begun to fall, our nation, our world is described economically. And notice how it's described. Is it Marxist or capitalist? Revelation chapter 18, verse 11 and 19. We're told this about, about after the plagues begin to fall on the world. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, over Babylon as it falls. For no one buys their merchandise anymore. They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she is made desolate. Who's crying out? 
business owners are crying out, we were made rich with our possessions. Our, we were, our personal profit is what? Is gone. We've been wiped out. And so we are told that our nation is going to have this lamb-like, dragon-like quality. It is a capitalist nation, and in the end, our nation is still practicing capitalism. Now let me tell you why I want us to understand that while capitalism so far has shown to be a better ideology than the other, it still doesn't make it a righteous one. Today in America, the word capitalism and Christianity are becoming synonymous. I've heard repeated sermons, both in the evangelical world and in the Adventist world over the last two or three years, ever since around the time Bernie Sanders really became popular. I've heard more and more sermons get closer and closer to using these words as synonymous. That capitalism is Christianity. That Christianity is capitalism. More and more they're becoming synonymous. So the only reason I'm telling you and educating you on what I'm educating you, I'm not saying don't be capitalist. I'm saying we need to not allow it to be synonymous with the work of God. It can't be synonymous with Christianity. So let's take a step back. Why then is our nation so focused on capitalism? This might shock you. You may never have heard this before. It goes back to evangelical Bible prophecy understanding. The pre-tribulation rapture idea preaches that Israel will be restored. That before Jesus comes back, Palestine and Islam will be kicked out of the Holy Land and that Israel will be restored. Now, shuffled into that is a racial stereotype. Now, this isn't our theology. This is theirs. But ushered into that is a racial stereotype that if Israel is going to be a nation, and since Jewish people love money, and the Jews run the banks, we have to practice capitalism to be a blessing to Israel. Let me dive into that with you. I'll show you that. I'll show you that. Our nation, our nation is very pro-Israel. Now, what you're hearing from me isn't anti-Israel. I'm just showing you what they believe. It's very pro-Israel. Why? Why does our nation believe it must be so pro the restoration of Israel? Why are we so adamant that Islam and Palestine have to be removed and that Israel must be restored? It goes back to a misunderstanding in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God is speaking to Abraham and he says this. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Who's God speaking to? Abraham. And to Abraham, he says, who will be blessed? All the families of the earth will be blessed that I will bless those who bless you. Well, the doctrine today in the pre-tribulation rapture world is that if a nation is a blessing to Israel, then God will be a blessing to that nation. 
That no matter what the nation does, good or bad, great or evil, no matter what the nation does, if the nation is pro-Israel, pro the restoration of Israel, then God will bless the nation. In fact, they, they teach it in, uh, in uh, it's actually here in this statement. They believe this to be true. That Israel has to have private ownership of the land. No sharing the land. Get Islam out. Get them out. They have to have private ownership of the land for their personal profit. That they will be restored and they will, they will, they will, be, uh, they will be wealthy and helped by God if they have capitalism there in Israel. And so America, American theology is, well, if we help Israel do that, then God will be a blessing to us. Basically, it's salvation by works. God will forgive us for all the wicked we do if we're a blessing to Israel. And so they want, and again, it's a racial stereotype. If, since, I should say, since they believe, since Jews run the banks and Jews like money, they want capitalism, and so we force capitalism. You don't believe me? Let's go back to why Karl Marx hated capitalism so much. You know, we say today, publicly what is taught today is that he hated, um, he hated capitalism because he wasn't materialistic. That's what they claim. But that's not true. That's not true. Let's go back to why he hated capitalism so much. He says this, the chimerical, that means imaginary, the imaginary nationality of the Jew is the nationality of the merchant. Did he like Jews very much? No, he, in fact, all of his writings, he hates Jewish people. Very clearly hates Jewish people. He hates Israel, and he hates the idea of Israel ever having the land again in Israel. Listen, this is a wicked guy. He is sinful. He's secular. He doesn't want blessings. He doesn't want God's prophecy being what they believe to be fulfilled. They don't want Jews to be blessed, and so he hates the Jewish people. And so he makes statements like this. The nationality of the Jew, the imaginary nation of, of Israel, is the nationality of the merchants. So why does he hate merchants? Why does he hate capitalism? Because they're Jewish philosophies. That's not my theology. That's his racism. That's his, that's his theology. In fact, Jewish people know this today. Jewish people accept that Marxism is anti-Israel, anti-Jewish. Jewish blogger Daniel Swindell says this. In Jewish prophecy, the redemption begins with the restoration of the nation of Israel. In Marxism, he says, the redemption begins with the end of the nation state. Bible students, Christians, where does redemption begin? With Jesus Christ. I should have said, with whom does redemption begin? With Jesus Christ. But the Jewish people believe, still to this day, that their redemption will begin. Do they believe Jesus was the Messiah? So they're waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. And they believe that the Messiah won't come unless you can re restore the nation of Israel. And so he's saying Marxism stands against us. Marxism stands against us. We need the Savior to come. For the Savior to come, we have to have a nation we can restore. And so therefore, Marxism is bad for us. And Marxism, it says, is uh, the redemption begins with the end of the nation state. 
You see, what's told us in the media, what's told us by politicians is a whole different story. But this is the beginnings, the origin of the hatred between capitalism and Marxism. It's a religious theology, but it's false theology, false prophecy. In fact, isn't this the same theology that they tried to force on Jesus, that Jesus was there to restore the nation of Israel? You see, the, the history of it is this. In the, the Jewish people believe the Savior is coming a first time to restore Israel as a nation. Well, evangelicalism believes the same thing. They just believe it's the second time. In pre-tribulation prophecy, the Savior is coming a second time to restore Israel as a nation. So you have false theology that is replacing Jesus. Jesus is the beginning of redemption. Jesus has come. He is not coming a second time to restore the nation of Israel. He's coming to take us home to build a new earth. Amen? And so you have this false antichrist theology that is the catalyst behind these economic ideologies. It's not a place for the Adventist Christian to be. This is not our theology. This is not the Bible's theology. In fact, it's very dangerous to play with this idea of the restoration of Israel. Let's notice from Scripture. After Jesus fed the 5,000, the 5,000 plus, I should say, notice what they tried to do. John 6, 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. What did they want him to be? The king, their spiritual king, the king of their heart, the king of their salvation, the king of the restored Israel, the king who would kick the Romans out. Rewind 2,000 years. Jesus, the Messiah, was coming to kick the Romans out. Fast forward 2,000 years. You have Jewish believers and evangelical believers. Jesus is coming to kick Islam out. Has nothing to do, real Bible theology has nothing to do with the restoration of Israel. On this topic, Ellen White says this, Desire of Ages 393. The news spread swiftly that by his own confession, Jesus of Nazareth was not the Messiah. We'll come back and read that, or talk about that in a second. Let's keep reading. Alas for Israel, they rejected their Savior because they longed for a conqueror who would give them temporal power. Why did they reject the Savior? Because they were looking for someone to give them earthly power, to restore their nation. And we have evangelical Christians preaching that message. Jesus is coming to restore an earthly kingdom in Israel. We have Jewish theologians saying this Messiah is coming to restore the nation of Israel. And so you have Marxism hating the Jews, so therefore they hate Christianity, therefore they hate capitalism, because in our world the two are becoming synonymous. But it's no place for the Adventist Christian believer. Because we believe Jesus is coming for a whole different reason. To build a new earth where all of us will be one people with him. In fact, this is the same theology at his judgment, at the judgment hall. I'm sorry, I should go back. I should go back. I don't want to miss that point, the first sentence. The news spread swiftly that by his own confession, Jesus of Nazareth was not the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth was not their expected Messiah. They were expecting someone to give and restore the kingdom of Israel. 
So what, the news went out, nope, he's not the Messiah. It's not him. Why? Because he said, I'm not here for the kingdom. I'm not here for the things. You want bread. I'm here to give you the living bread, right? And they said, nope, he's not the Messiah because they were, it was ingrained in their mind the Messiah is coming for an earthly kingdom. And so they rejected their Messiah. American Christians today, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. Let's notice the kingdom hall, judgment hall here. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. What were they focused on? The nation or their Messiah? The nation. They were focused on the country before they were focused on their king. And that is why our title is what it is in, in that order for a reason. For king and country. Jesus first. Jesus first. But they were focused on the nation. And they tried to make the Messiah fit into their truth rather than let the truth change them and uphold them as a nation. We're seeing this exact same thing take place in the United States today. American Christians speak as if capitalism and Christianity are synonymous because it is believed that capitalism is synonymous with the restoration of the nation of Israel. You not hear me say, don't be capitalist. I'm saying that the reason our nation is capitalist is for the wrong reason. For the wrong reason. It's a part. It goes back to two horns of a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. Our intent, what we say out loud, isn't necessarily our intent of our hearts. Now, I know the major problem with, cap with, with Marxism is that everywhere Marxism is, what do we see with Christianity? Christianity gets oppressed every time in every example, right? Marxism oppresses Christianity. True, totally true. But the prophecies of Revelation are of capitalist America working with Rome. So is it true then in also capitalist situations that in the end, Christians will be oppressed and the truth will be oppressed? It can happen in both part, in both groups, in both ways. Satan has all points covered. No matter what the world takes, he has focused on silencing Christianity. But I want you to know tonight, everyone, the message cannot be silenced. We have nothing to be afraid of. It cannot silence us. He cannot silence us. Prophet and Kings 186. The whole force of the popular current may be turned against the truth. Plot after plot may be formed to overthrow the people of God. But in the hour of greatest peril, the God of Elijah will raise up human instrumentalities to bear a message that will what? Not be silenced. Amen? Satan has plot after plot. He has every road leading to oppression. Every road leading to the persecution of Sabbath-keeping Christians. But no matter the plot that the world chooses, regardless of what government or what politics or whatever they are, the church will not be made silent. The message will go out. Isn't that the promise of Jesus? And this gospel will reach everywhere, right? It will go to the ends of the earth. The everlasting gospel will go out. So, give me several more minutes here.
Because we can look at Adventist history and we can actually see what happens when the Adventist message gets mixed in with, with a political agenda. What happens when our Adventist people begin to think nation first before they think God? Because we actually have that in our history where Adventists began to put the nation above God and it is, was disastrous. Let's go back in history here. Treaty of Versailles. World War I is, was, is ending. This is the treaty to end the war, signed in June of 1919. History is, is very agreeable to this fact that the Treaty of Versailles is one of the leading reasons for World War II. The Treaty of Versailles was incredibly unfair to the German people. It hammered them hard. In fact, here's a picture of German boys during the deep depression of their economy using the currency to make a kite. It was worthless. In fact, it was cheaper in Germany after the Treaty of Versailles. It was cheaper to burn your money in the winter than it was to use it to buy firewood. And so the Treaty of Versailles really hammered down on the German people. Really ruined their economy. It ruined their way of life and it made them an oppressed people. Now, without necessarily meaning any sympathy to their cause, this included the Adventists who were starving and hurting and just in the mix as everyone else. So then a very passionate speaker stands up. A man named Adolf Hitler says, I can fix the nation. I can fix the nation. If you follow me, I can fix the nation. Now, Adolf Hitler had a strategy he specifically targeted smaller American denominations in Germany to get them to his side. Because he felt that if he could get American smaller denominations on his side, that they would take the news back to America and that America would sympathize with Nazism. And so he set out on a quest to get smaller American denominations on his side. And at that time, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was one of those smaller American denominations. And because our people were so focused on nation, on country before God, the Adventist Church became supporters of Adolf Hitler in Germany. There were some reasons, that, that and, and I will leave the judgment to God. I'm just giving you the historical story here. But there were some reasons why our church sympathized with Nazism in Germany. For one, Adolf Hitler, he didn't practice our health message, but he was pretty close. He taught uh, temperance with alcohol. He didn't drink strong drinks. And our people cherished that. They said, look, he, 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 he preached vegetarianism. Now, history tells us that he was lying. He preached vegetarianism, but in his palace he was eating meat. But he preached being vegetarian. He preached temperance with alcohol. He preached being healthy. I mean, his whole message was, let's be a strong, vigorous, energetic people, right? Let's weed out the weak and get what the strong raised. That was his message. And so he was preaching a health message, our people thought. He also was very anti-Catholic. He didn't get along with the Catholic Church because he wanted control and he wanted power. And so he was anti-Catholic. He spoke out against the... Now, the Catholic Church actually in Germany supported him as well. I don't know how that worked. He was anti-Catholic, but they supported him. But he was anti-Catholic, 
And he was pro-health message. And so Adventist said, sign me up. This guy's a good guy. This guy's preaching. This guy's going to help us. This guy's going to be a blessing to us. In fact, history tells us that we supported him. In the Adventist town of Fredenzau, Germany, 99.9% voted for the Nazi parliamentary state. This is an Adventist town. This is like the Loma Linda of Germany, right? I don't know. Maybe they delivered their mail on Sundays too. And so in this Adventist town, 99.9% voted for Nazism. Adventists believed that he was for religious freedom. And by the way, for two weeks, he shut down Adventist churches for no reason. And even after he shut down the churches, our church was sympathetic and said, oh, it must just be a mistake. He couldn't possibly hate us. He couldn't possibly be wanting to oppress religion. And our people were still sympathetic after he shut down churches. In fact, we're told that Adventist literature evangelists sold religious books, Steps to Christ, Great Controversy, along with Nazi propaganda. As we went door to door, we were, we were sharing both, selling both. Hey, buy this Nazi magazine and a Steps to Christ. We were putting country before God. We were mixing the two. Now, it's also true that at that time, that the Adventists in Germany had the best welfare system there was. Community service, Dorcases, all throughout Germany. It was a you know, terrible time. People were oppressed. People were starving. And we did a wonderful job of helping the poor. We had the best welfare system in, in Germany. And it was run by a lady named Holda Joost. Holda Joost was actually invited by the general conference session to come to, the, uh, to come to America and to present to the general conference what she thought about the, uh, the Nazi party. And here's what she said. She praised the German government for, quote, being an umbrella in the storm. Being an umbrella in the storm. Nazi government, she came and praised them to our general conference. And so our general conference did not take a hard stance against Nazism, including in Germany. In fact, many of our Adventist leaders in Germany uh, were, were Nazis themselves. Now, I understand that not all of the German people understood what was going on during the war. But here's the sad thing, that even after the war was over, even after things like the Holocaust were now apparent to the people, every single church in Germany removed all of the Nazis out of their leadership but one. One church, even after the war, was so sympathetic to Nazism that the United States Army had to send a representative to our president of the German Union and had to demand that the church kick the Nazis out of church leadership. In fact, all other churches had already done so. Every other denomination, Catholic, Protestant, uh, Latter-day Saint, uh, Jehovah's Witness, they had all removed the Nazis out of leadership, but we were still keeping them in leadership. So from our history, we can see the dangers of putting country over God, of getting sidetracked with politics, sidetracked with a let's restore the nation kind of attitude, and that's the attitude we have. Let's restore our nation. Let's fix our nation. Absolutely, let's fix America. How do we do it? Preach Jesus Christ. That's the mission of the church. That's it. 
Our job is to focus on Jesus Christ. We must preach the good news. You want to fix our nation? Let's start doing more evangelistic series. Let's get Bible studies in every home. Let's pass out actual real literature, not propaganda, but actual real literature in social media and door to door. Let's get the gospel out to the world. And that can fix our nation. I'll leave you with this thought. People of Israel had left Egypt. They were coming out with their exodus. To the south lay mountains and the Indian Ocean. To the north were the Philistines. And so they had one path to travel, and that was to the west. But it brought them to the shores of the Red Sea. So at this point, the people had two options. Cross the Red Sea, and they had no idea what to do. Cross the Red Sea, or stay where they were. But what did they suddenly see? They suddenly see coming up behind them the Egyptian army. So I want you to notice what the people of Israel do in this fear and terror. The army of Egypt is coming behind them. It says this in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 283. The Hebrews were encamped beside the sea, whose waters presented a seemingly impassable barrier before them. Suddenly they beheld in the distance the flashing armor and moving chariots betokening the advance guard of a great army. She continues, As the force drew nearer, the hosts of Egypt were seen in full pursuit. Terror filled the hearts of Israel. Now notice what they did. Some cried unto who? The Lord. But far the greater part hastened to Moses with their complaints. We have two options. Because we're, on this, the, the, we're, in the, we're in the midst of the Red Sea, right? Tribulation is coming. We've got to figure out how to make it from here to the second coming. And we have two options. We can cry out to the Lord or we can cry out to people. And hey, Moses, what kind of person was he? Was he wicked? Was he terrible? He's a good person. He's a good person. He's their prophet. He's their leader. But could he fix the problem? He can't fix the problem. Could he restore the nation? Could he get the nation on his own power across the Red Sea and back to, the, back to Israel? He couldn't do it. But isn't it sad here that only some cried unto the Lord and far the greater called out to Moses with their complaints. What will do more good in our world right now, in our nation right now? We need to cry out unto the Lord. We need to be careful. I'm not saying be silent. I'm not saying don't vote. I didn't say don't be involved. We need to be careful to not put our hope and faith in a government, in an ideology, or in people. But put our hope in the Lord. Amen? In fact, that's exactly what's prophesied as our nation begins to crumble. It's prophesied that we don't cry unto the Lord, but we cry out unto a man, out unto the first beast, out unto the Antichrist. We cry out, we reach across the Atlantic, and we join hands with Rome because we cry out to Moses with our complaints. Save us! far more will do that 
they will focus on the people and the politicians and the ideologies and the government. But our only redemption, our only salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our last verse. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Can I play with that a little bit? Some trust in Republicans and some in Democrats. But we will remember the name of the Lord, our God. This is our mission. This is our message. And this is the only way to fix myself, yourself, our hearts, or our nation, is to cry unto the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this reminder. I know it's a balancing act. It's difficult. We want what's best for our nation, and we, we, we want the right politicians. We want the right issues. We want the right votes. We want this. But the only way to accomplish that, Lord, as we've learned this evening, is to cry out unto you, to spread your gospel, to not put country above God, but to put you above country for king and country. Help us keep a holy perspective to be focused on your mission of love, to share that love with people. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.